This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're at the end of chapter 9. We've arrived at another transition in our study. We're moving from a narrative section, where Matthew puts Christ's power on display, back to a didactic section of the Gospel, where Matthew records Jesus' teaching. At the end of chapter 9, Matthew pauses to sum up what he's related to his readers so far, and to clarify the motivation of Jesus Christ. Why was he here on the earth? Today, we'll learn more about the driving force behind Christ's mission and be challenged to imitate his plan and purpose. It will determine if we really are followers of Christ or just admirers. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, open them to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to finish by looking at verses 35 through 38. And the Bible says this, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And church, that's how Matthew concludes this chapter here, by telling about the motivation of Christ. And concerning his motivation for offering the kingdom, I want you to look at three specific items here. And we need to understand Christ's intention, Christ's inclination, and Christ's instruction. That's what we're going to talk about today. So verse 35, what we have here is a summary of his intention. Matthew describes Jesus' mission in an almost identical verse. You may remember chapter 4, verse 23, when Matthew says, Jesus was going through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Almost identical. Now, Those two verses confirm what Jesus said, for example, in Luke 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's his mission. That's the reason he came. That is his intention, to seek and save lost people, undeserving sinners. So here's a picture of his threefold intention, the threefold intention of Jesus Christ. First of all, teaching. Matthew used the term didasco for this activity of Christ here, which originated the word in English that we know as didactic. Also, we see that he did this in synagogues, at least in the beginning. But obviously, it wasn't exclusively his place of teaching, because remember, we just studied the Sermon on the Mount, where he taught outside. But synagogues started to appear in the period between testaments here as Jewish centers of learning. Now, they were not miniatures of the temple. They were simply Jewish centers of learning where leaders of the synagogue or uh, rabbis would turn over the pulpit to itinerant preachers sometimes so that they can teach the local congregation of Jews. That's why Jesus had no problem speaking at synagogues as a guest speaker. And I want you to know, church, that Jesus' teaching contrasted sharply with the lessons of the scribes and the Pharisees. How do we know that? Because you will remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told them, you heard what it was said, 
But I say to you. Now he's not contradicting the Old Testament because he said, I did not come to contradict the Old Testament, but to fulfill the law. So what he's saying to them is, you have a wrong understanding of the Old Testament. You have the wrong application because you have false teachers telling you the Old Testament. So let me give you the correct interpretation of that. That's the intention of Jesus Christ. He came to seek and save that which was lost, but he does that by teaching them, by providing them correct information, saying, I am the Messiah. There is no other way to come to the Father but through me. So Jesus was teaching them. The apostles perpetuated that same thing, and the early church inherited the practice. A man teaching the Word of God to a gathering of people. That's what we're doing this morning. Why do we do this, church? Because we want to honor Christ and his intention to feed his people through teaching of sound doctrine. And that's the reason Paul instructs Timothy that the elder must be able to teach. Why? Because teaching is a central part of what we do as a church. Now, we gather here not to just celebrate, but to teach. We're gathering here not just for a social event, but to be fed the Word of God, to be nourished. Paul also clarifies that the content of the teaching of the church should be the very Word of God. He says this to Timothy, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So church, you come here to be equipped for every good work. Why? Because we are perpetuating the ministry of Jesus Christ. Because that is his mission. His intention is to teach people so that we will be equipped to do what he wants us to do. Therefore, Churches that teach anything else other than the Word of God dishonor the legacy of Christ. Do we understand that? If a church teaches anything else but the Word of God, that church dishonors the legacy of Christ. Of course, we will discuss social issues, politics, and economics as long as Scripture addresses them. Only to see what God says about them. What I say about them is completely irrelevant. You don't need my opinion for any of that. What we need to learn is God's opinion about politics, God's opinion about social issues, God's opinion about economics, and so forth. And like Paul, what we do here, church, is we teach the full counsel of God. Acts 20, verse 27. Paul says, this is what I've done to you. I have, I'm, I've been teaching you the full counsel of God. So again, a pastor slash teacher should never volunteer his own opinions from the pulpit. He is to be the mouth of Christ to feed the sheep of God by explaining the Word of God. He is not to go beyond what the Word of God says. And if he does any of that, then he is not honoring the legacy of Christ. He's not being an imitator of Christ. And that gives me great comfort, church, because my job description is not unclear. I am to teach you what the Bible says what the Bible means by what it says. And by the way, the Bible says what it means and it means what it says. And what the Bible requires of you. So that's the first portion of Christ's intention. We're talking about the summary of his intention. Teaching is a vital part of what he came here to do and therefore a vital part of what we do. But I want you to know, secondly, he also came to proclaim. So teaching is different than proclaiming. Teaching is impartation of information from head to head. And obviously, in our case, from heart to heart. But proclaiming is a little different. Matthew used the Greek term keruso for that word here to describe what Jesus did. And that is the job of a herald. And that is, Matthew says, Jesus was doing. He was there proclaiming an authoritative message, an urgent message, and a message that he received from the Father. You see, he said this in John 12, verse 49. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. So that is exactly the job of a herald. That is what we are to imitate. Why do we say this? 
Notice the content of the message. In Matthew 3, verse 2, John the Baptist, the forerunner, spoke, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Now, Jesus Christ repeats the same short sermon verbatim. Listen to Matthew 4, verse 17. The words of Jesus, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he elaborates, Jesus Christ does, that people must enter the kingdom through the narrow gate. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and you must enter the kingdom through the narrow gate. Matthew 7, verse 13. And I want you to know, church, that after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, the apostles did the same thing. They proclaimed the kingdom. They proclaimed as heralds the message of the king has come and he has offered the kingdom and you must enter through the narrow gate. But obviously they used a different illustration, at least in the records of scripture that we have here. For example, Peter proclaimed to the Jews, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul, who focused on Gentiles, as you know, said this according to Acts 17, verses 30 to 31, Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent, because He has set a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising Him from the dead. So that is the message that the apostles proclaim, echoing the message of Jesus Christ. In church, we are to echo the same message. Jesus Christ commands all mankind to repent and to come to Him. It's not an invitation. It's more than that. It's a summons. It's a command that people should repent and come to Jesus Christ because He still offers the kingdom of heaven to people. Paul instructs Timothy, again, a pastor, using the same term, caruso. You are to proclaim. You are to caruso this message. And the message is this. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reproof, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So church, the message is clear to all of us. If we claim to be imitators of Christ, we are not only to teach and we are to proclaim the message as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And like Paul, we tell people in proclamation form, be reconciled to God. Now, the problem for us is that many people don't believe they need reconciliation with God. They think they're okay with God. And that is why, church, our proclamation should be accompanied by kindness, even though it's an authoritative message, even though it's a command, we need to do so with compassion, with kindness, without watering down the message, without compromise, without changing the gospel so that people will accept it. I can't think of a worse case of dereliction of duty than to change the message so that people will come to Jesus Christ, to change the message so that the message will be more acceptable. No, no, that's not our job. Our job is to proclaim, unroll the scroll and proclaim the message that Jesus Christ is here to save. He commands people to enter through the narrow gate and that narrow gate is called faith, by grace through faith. So, thankfully, Jesus made that reconciliation possible. Colossians 1 verses 19 through 20, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, meaning in Christ, and through Him, Christ, to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, and I say, whether things on earth and things in heaven. So we say to people, listen, you need to be reconciled to God. God made it possible for you to be reconciled to God, and that is through the blood of Christ, through the cross. So, what do we proclaim again, church? 1 Corinthians 1, verses 23 to 24. We preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
So if we're not proclaiming Christ, church, we are failing in our duty. We're not telling people how to have a better life. We're not telling people how to get rid of their problems. No, God will teach them to do that. The first thing is they need to be in the kingdom because they're naturally outside of the kingdom. People are by nature alienated from the kingdom of heaven because of their sin. And such was the case for all of us here. We were alienated from our creator and maker because of our sin. But when we heard the message of the gospel proclaimed, then we responded in faith. And that is what we are to do. We are to teach people. We are to proclaim the message to people because that's the intention of Christ. And thirdly, the third aspect here of his intention is restoring. So teaching, proclaiming, and restoring. And we see that because Matthew used the Greek term therapeuo to describe that Jesus was healing. And the term communicates reversal of physical condition. That's what it means. It's a reversal of a physical problem. But besides demonstrating his power here over disease, like we saw here in those two chapters, in previews of kingdom realities that people will have a glorified existence, the healings of this chapter here demonstrate Christ's unique ability to reverse the curse of sin, not only his compassion towards people, but to reverse the aspects or the consequences of sin that we started in Genesis 3. Now, the apostles also had healing power to authenticate the message. That was the purpose of them being endowed with healing power, the apostolic gifts here. For example, Peter in Jerusalem and also Paul in Lystra, they had healing power. But those, I want you to know, those were exclusive of the apostolic age. Not, not one of us here has the gift of healing because that was exclusive of that generation. Why? Because they needed it to authenticate their message. Once the last apostle died, the apostolic face of the church is over. The Bible is complete and sufficient for all we need. That's why none of us here has the gift of healing. And if anyone here claims to have the gift of healing, you will have to claim to be an apostle. And to be an apostle means you have seen the risen Christ and he has personally commissioned you. None of us here qualifies. Now, while none of us has the apostolic gift of healing, and we may, may not be able to tell paralytics, get up and walk, we can tend people's spiritual wounds. That is what we've been called to do. We have been called to the ministry of restoration. Here's what Paul telling us what we should do. This is a prescription. He says this, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So friends, if you are wondering, what should I be doing? Well, one of the things you should be doing besides proclaiming Christ is to tend to each other's wounds, is to bear one another's burden. That's how we live. We restore people by applying Christ-like divine attributes. Listen to another one here from Ephesians 4 verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You see, church, if you refuse to forgive someone, you are living in sin. You need to know that. It doesn't matter how bad somebody else treated you. If you are withholding forgiveness from someone, you are not imitating Christ. You want to know why? Because God has forgiven your terrible sin that was deserving of death. And Jesus Christ took your place on the cross and granted you forgiveness. And not only that, he separated your sin from you as far as east is from the west, meaning he will never bring it up again. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, you need to grant forgiveness to each other. 
Yes, we can pray for the sick. We should pray for the healing of the sick. And we trust the Lord to do the job of of healing. But if he decides to withhold physical restoration, we pray for endurance, fully aware that his grace is sufficient. According to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9. So that's the summary of his intention there, teaching, proclaiming, and restoring, and we are to imitate that. If we claim to be believers in Christ, if we claim to be subjects of the kingdom of heaven, and therefore his followers, we do all of these things. But secondly, I want you to see, according to verse 36, the solemnity of his inclination. It's the nobility of the motivation of Christ, okay? Matthew describes Jesus' perception of the crowd. Did you notice that? That Jesus looked at the crowd, and then he had a specific perception, And the words that Matthew used, he used two words. Those two words can be translated in several different ways. For example, that the crowds were troubled. They were harassed, wearied, cast away, mangled, dispersed, besides obviously dispirited and distraught. And Matthew also adds the picture of lost sheep, of scattered sheep. And that is the assessment of Jesus Christ that prompted divine compassion. And again, the word that Matthew used to describe what Jesus felt is a deep hurt inside his guts right here. See, we talk about the heart in our culture, in our language. In that language and in that culture, you would describe compassion by a deep hurt and pain inside the gut here. Literally, Jesus hurt for those people. He hurt for the crowds. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. But again, if we remember what we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, it'll shed light on the reason why Jesus felt that. The people who claimed to be the shepherds of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees, were terrible shepherds. In fact, they were false pastors. They were false shepherds. How do we know that? Because they murdered people in their hearts. They say, well, I'm not plunging the knife. I'm not pulling the trigger. It doesn't matter. You hate them in your heart. You've already committed murder. Also, they committed adultery in their hearts. They're saying, well, I'm not going out with another woman. Well, but you already committed adultery in your heart because you desire that woman and it's not appropriate. Furthermore, they refused to forgive. That's why Jesus told them in chapter 7, verses 1 through 2, they held grudges against each other. They said, well, you are no longer worthy to be my friend because you've done this. That's why Jesus says, you're not to judge. That is not your job. You are not supposed to judge prematurely. You're supposed to identify, yes, an issue of sin, but you're not supposed to pass on judgment and render verdict on someone. They refused to forgive. And when the compassionate Savior came, telling them a message of forgiveness and instructing them, listen, you have a wrong understanding of the Bible. Let me correct your understanding. They hated Jesus. The scribes and Pharisees accused them of blasphemy and also Satanism. No wonder... The crowds were battered and bruised. Their shepherds were terrible pastors. They were terrible leaders. Church, I'm convinced that distressed and dispirited describes our society very accurately today. What else do you expect when you neglect grace and you embrace legalism, which is the religion of the Pharisees? When you embrace the hard heart, a non-compassionate heart, a non-kind heart, what else do you expect? I'm equally convinced, church, that some of you are distraught, dispirited, wearied, heavy laden, bruised and battered, not because you have false shepherds. I can tell you that for sure. You have imperfect pastors. Yes, you have imperfect shepherds. That is a fact. And you will have them anywhere you go. But primarily because our society constantly leads you, leads people away from the true shepherd. That is the motivation of our secular society, to lead you away from the good shepherd. 
And therefore, if you follow that, you will be harassed, cast away, dispirited, distraught. There is no grace. There is no forgiveness. There is no restoration. We are constantly bombarded with unbiblical alternatives on how to deal with the stress of the times. Are we not? But there's good news. Right here from the text, Matthew wants to encourage his readers by showing the compassion of Christ. He has a perfect shepherd's heart, Jesus does. And Matthew says this, and in fact, he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, according to John chapter 10, verse 11. And he raised some of us to be under shepherds, to gather the scattered sheep, to tend to your wounds, feed you the nutritious word of God, and sometimes when necessary, lovingly rebuke you. My fellow elders and I, church, discharge our shepherding duties imperfectly, of course, but gladly and faithfully. When we see you distraught and dispirited, we hurt for you. We shed tears for you because that is the solemn inclination of the heart of Christ. And he called us to imitate his heart. And we desire nothing more than to be faithful to that cause, to imitate the good shepherd. But I want you to know that besides the summary of his intention and the solemnity of his inclination, number three, and lastly here, the simplicity of his instruction, verses 37 to 38, Jesus invokes the image of farming, which everyone would understand in these two verses here, because they operated by an agrarian economy. And the analogy here teaches the disciples how to solve the problem of the scattered sheep. Now, there is no elaborate plan here, no recruiting strategy, just a simple plan. So let me talk to you about the problem and the solution, because that's what's in the text. The problem is this. The picture of a harvest that Jesus uses here refers to future judgment. And we know that because in chapter 13, verse 30, he elaborates on that. And he says this, at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the weeds and bind them in bundles and burn them, and then gather the wheat into my barn. So simply, the way to remember this is that I heard this from another pastor this week. Some people will be barned, others will be burned. And Jesus wants his disciples to know that the Father draws people to himself for the gathering in his barn. That's what it means to be in the kingdom. However, there is a continual shortage of workers in the harvest. Not because the Father is a bad manager, nothing can be further from the truth. But because the work is labor intensive. It's thankless. It's, it's unpopular. It's not glamorous. Everybody wants to receive divine compassion, of course. Not very many people are interested in telling others about the one who embraces that very attribute. So there's the problem. The problem is the human heart, not in the ability of the Father, the Lord of the harvest, of course. But here's the solution that Jesus offers. Interestingly, again, no mention of a recruiting campaign. A much better plan here that he offers. And he teaches the, his disciples that prayer is always the best and should be the first option, not the last resort. And harvesting souls for the Lord is not the exclusive domain of pastors and teachers and elders and deacons. In case you were wondering, say, well, I'm off the hook. We pay pastor to do that. No, no, no. It's your job to lead people to Christ. As much as it is mine, how do I know that? Because the Great Commission passages are in all four Gospels and the book of Acts. How many times does God need to say something for that something to be true and understood? Only one. He says it five times. Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20, and Acts 1, verse 8. If you are a subject of the kingdom of heaven and you're still on this earth, my friend, you are in the field of harvest. It's a thankless job, but I can't think of anything more joyous. If you're not doing your job, someone else is picking up the load, and that person could probably use some rest. So pick up the tool and head to the harvest field 
and ask God to give you a compassionate heart and start praying that God will raise up workers. And pretty soon, you know what he'll do, church? Pretty soon, he'll raise you up. I know that from personal experience. You start praying for God to raise up workers, he'll raise you up. He'll put in your heart a desire to reach people for Christ. How do I know that? Not only from personal experience, but look at chapter 10. He's instructing his disciples to pray for workers. And in chapter 10, he sends them out. (laughs) You see? He's praying. Listen, you pray for workers. And in chapter 10, guess what? You're it. In church, he will do the same. When you start praying for God to raise up workers for the harvest, he will raise you up. And that's the greatest thing that can happen to your life. Because yes, I can't think of, of a more noble job than to work for the Lord in his harvest. So that's Christ's intention his inclination, and his instruction concerning his motivation for offering the kingdom to people. You can also call it his mission, his motive, and his methodology. But the point is, if we claim identification with Christ, church, if we claim to be his his followers, and we don't mirror his heart for people, there's something massively wrong here with us, and we need to repent. If we do not have compassion for our fellow believers, if we do not have compassion on distraught and distressed sheep, We are mere admirers, not followers of Christ. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. You'll also be able to order our second book based on Pastor Pierre's sermon series, Ruth and the Kindness of God is an excellent read for anyone struggling to understand tragedy or deal with trauma. Get a copy today for you or someone you know that needs to hear how God uses difficult time for our good and His glory. Again, this book and Pastor's study on the book of Revelation are both available on truthwithgrace.org. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it. Write it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.